Thank you, Bonnie. I appreciate that. And a particularly appropriate song as we come to our final message in Joshua. We've been looking at how to develop a battle-ready faith. And and my prayer is that this study has been good for you in that, but it's uh, also a reminder that when we come to Jesus Christ, that's not when the battle's over. Uh, That's when we begin. That's when we join the Lord's army and we'll be We'll be uh, tested in that faith all throughout life. If you've uh, got your Bibles, open up to Joshua chapter 24, final chapter. I'm going to read uh, just verses 29 through 31 as, uh, as we prepare to preach this morning. It came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, on the north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who survived and had known all the deeds the Lord had done for Israel. Father God, we thank you again for this morning, for the opportunity we've had to worship in song, in giving, in fellowship with one another, and now worship as we look into your word. And we do pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you notice there that uh, uh, Joshua's at the age of 110 when this last chapter takes uh, place. And at that age, uh, he took up a new profession. Uh, he, he, he went to the first 40 years of his life, He served as a slave in Egypt, the next uh, 40 years as an aide to Moses, and then the next 30 years as the military leader leading the conquest of the promised land, but also the civic administrator of this new fledgling nation of Israel. And now here at the very end, he becomes a preacher, and he gives a final farewell message to the people. Uh, There are three main sections if you look at chapter 24. The first is Joshua's actual sermon, and then the second is the people's response to the sermon, and then the third is uh, an account of his death and burial and so forth. And since I, you know, gave you that spoiler alert last week to let you know, yeah, he does die, and and, uh, we read those verses, we're not actually even going to look at that this morning. We want to concentrate on the sermon and the people's response. And the sermon begins uh, chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 24, verse 1. Says, then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers, and they presented themselves before God. I kind of like the last line of that verse. You know, uh, when you come to church, do you picture yourself as presenting yourself before God? Uh, I think a lot of times we just show up, but. Understanding that we're presenting ourselves before God, how, how might that change our heart and our attitude on Sunday morning? How would that affect the way we interact with uh, other people or how you might hear and receive uh, the sermon? I think it's an interesting thought. But anyway, Joshua called them all together and then he began the sermon. Joshua, uh, in verse 2, it says, Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now I want you to know that is the beginning of of a good sermon. I don't have any idea what kind of preacher Joshua was. I don't know if he was, you know, exciting and dynamic and easy to listen to, or if he was rather uh, monotone and flat in his delivery. I have no idea. 
but this, uh, his ability as an orator is not the point. A good sermon is not determined by the skills of the preacher, but by his source material. You know, a man uh, can be eloquent, witty, persuasive, uh, full of interesting information that makes you feel really good. But if the material is not based on thus says the Lord, it's not a good sermon. And the flip side of that is also true. I mean, a person could be a great speaker, uh, not a great speaker. He might not have uh, interesting illustrations and his delivery could be, you know, pedestrian at best. But if he is saying to you, this is what God says, this is what he tells us, then that's a good sermon. And it's something that we need to listen to and and take to heart. That's why it's been a a commitment of ours here at the church from the very beginning uh, to to make the Bible the foundational textbook of our existence. And and that's indicated even in our core values as we look at the acrostic light by the the eye, the inspired by biblical truth. I mean, that means that that we're going to do our best to seek to understand this book that God has given us and the instructions that are in it. And, and in order to facilitate of that, of course, it means we need to preach and teach only from God's Word. And I fear that uh, too many churches have abandoned that, and that's why we see a weakness and, a, and, a, and an apathy and a decline in power in our churches today. So Joshua declares that's how his sermon is going to be. And with that, then he begins his sermon with a little bit of a history lesson. In fact, verses 2 through 13 in Joshua 24 uh, describe God's action on behalf of Israel, what he has done for them. And Joshua delivers this sermon in the first person as if he was speaking for God. And uh, you'll notice the first person... um, takes place in this text no less than 17 times we have things like God saying I took I gave I sent I I brought you out of Egypt I brought you into the land I destroyed your enemies I delivered you I gave you this land all these things that God has done and God was making it very clear from the very beginning up until that point that everything they had and everything that they had achieved was actually done by God's power and his purpose you know, it's a, it's a good thing to be able to look at where you are now and remind you, yourself of what God has done to bring you there. I was talking to a member of our church here just, uh, just this last week, and he was telling me that he had just decided uh, one night uh, to sit down and, and just start writing out the cool things that he's seen God do in his life just in the last couple of years. And, and as he'd write, you know, he'd remember one thing and that brought to mind another thing. And some of those things were big life-altering types of, uh, of um, actions by God. And many of them were more of uh, uh, daily providence of God working in his life. But as he continued on that, he said before very long, he realized he had four pages of stuff written out. You know, that's a, that's a good practice for all of us to get into, isn't it? I mean, like Joshua, we can rehearse those good things that God has done in our life. And in fact, we need to do that because our tendency, our natural inclination tends to be to focus on the negative or whatever has gone wrong or whatever has been hard. And so if we purposely start looking out and saying, okay, what has God done? And you start writing those things and you rehearse what he's done, 
you'll find that God has had this incredible impact in your life. And like Abraham, or like Joshua, it might begin way before your own lifetime. He went clear back to Abraham. He brought them back to the beginning. It says in verse 2, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. See, the, the, their story begins with God's grace, as, of course, does each of ours. Um, notice that Abraham was not seeking God where he was, right? He, he wasn't out looking for God. Uh, whenever the Bible uses that phrase, the river, with a capital R like that, uh, it's always referring to the Re- Euphrates River. I mean, that was the major tributary in that part of the country. And so everything else in the Bible uh, is, is positioned by how it uh, sets in, uh, geographically in comparison to the Euphrates. So they say beyond the river. That's talking about the Euphrates. And Abraham was not over there beyond the river going, huh, I see all these pagan gods and idols around me and I'm thinking there must be a better way than that. No, he wasn't doing that at all. He was doing what everybody else was doing. He was worshiping these idols when all of a sudden God's grace broke through. God sought him, God called him, and as a result, his life was forever changed. And I know that many, if not most of us in this room, have had that same kind of encounter with God's grace. And of course, if you haven't, then you can, because God's grace is calling you. Truth be told, all of our stories begin with his grace. To be sure, we may not have been bowing down to other gods beyond the river, Uh, as Abraham was doing, but no matter what your story is, whatever your past, you needed God's grace to be able to come into a right relationship with Him just as much as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the rest. So after talking about the beginning of their relationship, then uh, Joshua uh, highlights a, a few points in the timeline of their history. And from those points, we're reminded of some of the truths concerning the way God works. For instance, look in verse 3. It says, Then I took, God speaking, Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, led him through the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. Now, did you catch those last two phrases and how odd that they appear together? Multiplied your descendants and gave you Isaac. One. One's Not a lot of multiplication, is it? And if you do the math according to Genesis, it took 25 years to get that one. I'm thinking, you know, math has never really been my strong suit. But but I'm thinking if I was given a multiplication problem with only one, and I had 25 years to figure it out, I could probably handle even that one. You know, I could see it as, well, let's see here. Uh, I've got Isaac, uh, one, and, uh, well, that's it, one. And so, yeah, one. I, I think I could get there. But, you know, maybe, maybe we should keep going with Joshua because he does, he does add into this in the, in the next verse. It says, to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. Oh, well, now that's a lot better, right? Now we're getting into higher mathematics here. We had one, but now we get two more. 
course, again, if you're doing the math in, uh, in uh, Genesis and adding up the year, Isaac was 60 years old when Jacob and Esau were born. So that means it's been 85 years that have passed between God's promise to multiply your descendants and finally getting up to three of them. So what does this teach us about God? Well, I think the one lesson that we have to learn from this is that God is not in a hurry. He is in no rush to meet any calendar deadlines or under the tyranny of the clock. In fact, from a human perspective, we could honestly say that sometimes God is just downright slow. Anybody in here ever been uh, irked? A little frustrated maybe that God's timetable doesn't run on the same pace as yours? I mean, God does have his own deadlines. He has his plans that he has set up and he will meet every single one of them. He's going to accomplish everything he said he'll do and he's going to do it on just the right time. God did multiply Abraham's seed just as he said he would, but he did it slowly. And it's a good reminder for us that, yes, God does keep his promises. He'll do what he says he's going to do, but sometimes it happens gradually and incrementally. In fact, from our human perspective, sometimes it can happen so slowly that we're just not even sure. We might not even notice God's faithfulness, but God always is faithful. You know, the Apostle Peter had to deal with this, this misconception uh, uh, that can arise because of our human perspective and our timetable desires versus uh, the way God does things. They're talking about the return of Jesus and the retribution of the rec- wicked and, and our glorification through this, Peter wrote, The Lord is not slow about His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We may want God to act right now. In fact, I would hazard a guess there that when it comes to us and the things that are going in in our life, we always want God to act right now. I'm guessing I'm not the only one in here. I'm assuming that many of you have uttered the same prayer that I've uttered, which is, God, what's taking you so long? Verses like this remind us to not lose heart. God is faithful in His promises and in His timing, His set. He will do what He has said He'll do. Now, in the sermon, at this point, Joshua jumps ahead 400 years in the history of Israel from, uh, from Abraham and Isaac. He goes up to the exodus in Egypt. Look at uh, verses 5 and 6. Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst. And afterwards, I brought you out, and I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And you came to the sea, and Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to, to the Red Sea. Now, those two verses, uh, in a a nutshell, they cover the first 14 chapters uh, of Exodus. And God did some amazing things to to bring freedom uh, to the Israeli slaves in, in Egypt. But then he did another interesting thing. And this is the point where, again, I think we can learn something about the way God works in our life. 
Verse 6 simply had said, you came to the sea, is the way he described it there. But as you read the book of Exodus, it becomes clear that God is the one who led them to that exact location, that point in the sea. But that location turned out to be a position of helplessness for them. They had the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds, as the case may be, in front of them and the mighty army of Pharaoh hotly pursuing them from behind. And as far as they could see, in their point of view, they were trapped. They were hemmed in and in a desperate situation. But then look at verse 7. It says, But when they cried out to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them, and your own eyes saw what I did in Egypt. God will allow times in our lives where He purposely boxes us in, hems us in, in our own helplessness in order to show that we need to be completely dependent upon Him and that we can trust Him in those situations. At the Red Sea, they cried out to God and God did what they could not do themselves. And the Apostle Paul put that kind of situation when we experience that in our own lives this way. He says, but we have this treasure, our salvation and and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. That's what God wants us to learn. That the power is not from ourselves. We are not delivered in this world by our own ingenuity, by our insight, by our own strength. And obviously, all of our anxiety and worry has nothing to do in helping to remedy any situation, right? What does work is when we cry out to God. Now, we have to always go back to point one in this and understand that God's timing is not always our timing in this, but He is faithful. Just as He is faithful in His promises, He is also faithful to help in time of need. And you can depend on Him. And, and the truth is, you're in a pretty good position when you find yourself in that place of helplessness because that's when you get to see the power of God at work in your life. When you are helpless and you cry out to God, then you can stand back and watch the waters be parted before you. Because God is the one who acts. And then Joshua continues uh, the history lesson by bringing them up to date and reminding them of their recent past and the way that God kept their promise, His promises as He was bringing them into the promised land. And then He concludes it by looking at where they are right now, today. Verse 13, He says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities which you had not built and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. And and the point there is God is saying he's not only faithful in his promises and faithful in bringing help, but he's also faithful in his blessings. Joshua is saying to the people, man, look around you. Look at all that God has provided for you. And he gave you this. You didn't have to, to do all this work. It's his abundant blessing, his gracious provision, his good gifts to you. You are experiencing all of that right now because God is faithful in his blessing. We don't want to forget that frequently God shows His faithfulness to us in that daily bread and in those blessings. And yeah, He's there during those times of desperate need, but He's also present in the times of overflowing goodness. And unfortunately, it's in those times of overflowing goodness that we frequently uh, forget about God. 
I mean, uh, times of smooth sailing can often be more spiritually dangerous for us than experiencing the rough seas. Living on the edge forces us to cling to God. But living in the largeness of life, uh, not so much. And Joshua says we have to choose to remember God's faithfulness, which then brings him to the climax of his sermon. Verse 14 begins with the words, Now therefore. This is the climax. Now therefore. He is saying, you know, because of all these things we just saw, because God is faithful in His promises, because He is faithful to be there in time of need and to help us in those desperate situations, because He is faithful in His blessings, because of all that, now, therefore, He says, I want to hit you with the challenge. And here's the challenge. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. To fear is not a bad thing. It's not the idea of, you know, terrifying fright in our lives. Rather, it means to have the the utmost respect and high regard for and and reverence uh, to to God above everything else. It means to acknowledge Him as Lord and, and sovereign and Savior and placing your life under His rulership. That's what it means to fear Him and to serve Him, of course, is talking about your worship and your obedience to Him. And Joshua is saying that because we know who the Lord is, there is only one logical, reasonable, rational response on our part, and that is to fear Him and to serve Him. We, we need to give our lives to Him. Not, not in a sense of, uh, you know, grudging duty or, or even unwilling capitulation. Well, I have to because he, he's, that's who he is. It's the idea of insincerity and truth. We give ourselves to God as an expression of, of the true devotion of our hearts. And notice that Joshua, he, he places this as a command, he says. He is demanding this response from serve the Lord. He's telling them this is what they have to do. But this demand is based upon the grace and faithfulness of God. But Joshua knew he couldn't force this kind of response. It had to be a choice freely taken by each respondent. And that's why he goes on in verse 15 to say, if It is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Basically, he is saying, you know, you guys have seen the other options. You know what's available out there. You saw the gods of Egypt, how'd that work out for them? You seen the gods of the Amorites, how was that going? Who would you rather serve? Who do you want to follow today? And Joshua made it very clear what his choice is, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now I'm just going to make two very quick observations uh, about this final statement as we get ready to end. Um, the the sermon concluded and the congregation gave the expected response. The people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. 
Oh, yeah, they're saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're with you all the way, Joshua. We're on the same page as you. We want to do what you're going to do. We're going to serve the Lord. No problem. We're going to follow him. And, and that was the expected response, right? But then Joshua gave a very unexpected response back to them. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he's done good to you. Apparently, Joshua didn't know that the secret to building a megachurch is to make people feel good about themselves. He must have missed that class in seminary. Of course, I, I think Jesus probably missed that class too because, you know, he said crazy things like uh, to people like uh, you need to count the cost before claiming you're going to follow me or to pick up your cross and die daily to themselves or that no one after having put his hand to the plow and then looking back is worthy to uh, follow him. That's not the way you build a mega church. So you don't want to tell your potential followers hard things. You, you, you want them to feel good. And one of the ways you make them feel good is to affirm whatever things they're saying. And so thousands of people were telling Joshua, oh yes, we'll follow God. And he has the audacity to say, no, you won't. You won't be able to do it. He must have suspected that they were taking this whole thing too lightly, that they were being flippant in their response or perhaps making an emotional response just based on the hype of the moment and the exuberance of the crowd and all that type of thing rather than making a a, a true decision based on a deep conviction in their heart and acknowledging that it would only be by the grace of God, by His strength, that they would be able to do it. So even after Joshua's chastisement like that, they, they reaffirmed again, yes, we will follow, we can do this. And so then Joshua told them in verse 23, well, here's what you have to do. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. So where were these foreign gods that Joshua spoke about? Where does it say? It says, in their midst. The people already had them in their houses. That's why Joshua could say that they wouldn't be able to follow God. Their hearts were already divided. They were already chasing after other things and other desires. To follow God requires wholehearted devotion. And that same is true for us today. People make all kinds of shallow commitments to God while all the time having other gods already taking up residence in their hearts. Maybe the gods of money and material possessions or gods of popularity and acceptance or of safety and security or power, prestige, influence, whatever. There are a host of other gods that seek preeminence in our hearts today. And the command from Joshua is clear. Put away these gods. Get rid of them. Cease bowing down to them. And after shuttling these gods out, then you have to make that declaration. Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So again, two final observations about that statement we end today. For Joshua, he knew that this decision was something that each person had to make for themselves. He couldn't make it for his wife or for his children or grandchildren, but he was recognizing the tremendous influence that fathers uh, in particular and parents overall hold in a home. Uh, You know, a recent study was done 
on the influences of teenagers in their lives, uh, peer pressure, TV, movies, social media, teachers, etc. Do you know what they discovered was the very biggest influence in a teenager's life? Parents. It's mom and dad. And this may not be a, a Mother's Day message, but moms, what you do spiritually matters in your home. It matters to you, obviously, but it matters to the next generation and the generations after that will come. God has given you tremendous influence. Second observation, that command to choose, when he says choose you this day, it was written in the Hebrew in a particular tense that is an ongoing thing and it's what they call a continuous action verb. In other words, Joshua is not simply asking them to make a one-time choice. Who is it going to be? What are you going to do? Make that one-time choice. Instead, it was an always and forever choice. If he was applying it to himself, it would be as if Joshua was saying, yes, I have made that choice to serve Jesus Christ, uh, to serve God in the past, and I am choosing to serve him faithfully today, and I will choose to follow him all the days of my life until the very end. That's the choice that he's giving us today, the challenge that he's laying before us. Based on what you know to be true of God, of his character, that he's faithful in his promises, faithful to help in time of need, faithful in his blessings, then choose for yourselves today who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you uh, for this opportunity we have again to be challenged by your word. God, we pray that you would pull us towards yourself because we know that this world and the battle we're in constantly tries to pull us in opposite directions. So Lord, we ask that we could be faithful as you are faithful to us. We pray you would strengthen us for the battle each day to choose not only yesterday, but today and tomorrow to serve the Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.